Well, thanks for joining us today. Our little guys, um, our children, uh, are welcome to join us for children's ministry with Miss Dolores and friends. We have the kids' table program going on back there. So go ahead. We have a bunch of little guys today. And I know it's kind of today here in Pennsylvania, if you guys are online, you're in some tropical location or the mountains or something that's really nice. It's very, very rainy here. And we kind of had that like that kind of mellow vibe. So hopefully you got some caffeine in you. And uh, if you're not awake, then you will uh, be woken up shortly. So um, once again, welcome. I'm so glad that you guys are here. If you do notice, I'm moving a little bit more slower than I am running. It's because I had a little procedure this week. So Pastor Chris is following doctor's orders, okay? So no, no running in uh, just the, the very near future. No dancing up here today. I have to apologize for that. But, um, but last week we started uh, this series called Jonah and the Fail. Jonah and the Fail. And um, traveling through the story of Jonah and looking at this idea of failure throughout it. But I thought today we would start out um, looking at a couple of things in history that were huge failures. I don't know about you, but sometimes you look back at things that have happened and you're like, wow, that did not go well, right? That did not go as planned. And believe it or not, there were some very well-meaning people throughout history that resulted in failure despite their best laid plans. Um, I don't know if anybody's familiar with um, what was called the Great Emu War in Australia. This happened um, in right around, uh, right after World War I. And um, in Australia, there was the Great Depression that was taking on. And so um, there was grain that was in scarcity. There wasn't a lot for a lot of people. And the emus took over the landscape. We don't really have that problem here, but they took over the landscape. And believe it or not, the Australian government, they deployed their army, post-World War I veterans, to believe it or not, to combat these birds. They had a face-off with the birds. And it did not go well. And this is a quote. This is a quote from one of the leaders of that army. He said, if we had a military division with the bullet-carrying capacity of these birds... It would face in any army in the world. They can face machine guns with invulnerability of tanks. Crazy. And actually, the birds wound up defeating the army, withstanding the army. They had to come up with some other ways to take away the birds. That way, the grain could all happen. Failure, right? Well-meaning, but just did not go well. Um, what about this? This is a kind of interesting history. Uh, 1665, the Great Plague in London. The Great Plague in London. There are lots of plagues, black plagues, all, I guess all different colored plagues, that kinds of things. But um, there was the Great Plague that was happening. People were dying by the droves. This is a picture, an illustration. Isn't this a lovely illustration? This does make you feel all warm and fuzzy inside, right? But people were dying by in droves, and the people thought that, had the great idea that they would go to the source of the plague, which they believed to be, guess what? The cats! They went and decided to kill all the cats in the entire city when what was happening, if you're, any, if you're familiar with any kind of plagues, usually plagues are carried by mice and rats. And guess what took over the city? The mice and the rats when they killed the cats and things really went bonkers from there. Didn't end well. What about 1976? You might be familiar with these guys. 
inventors of Apple products, Apple, Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak, and Ronald Wayne. Well, they formed this organization called Apple that was going to be the next greatest thing. Maybe you're familiar with that organization. Well, there was uh, the one non-Steve, Ronald Wayne. He was given 10% of the company because he wasn't kind of like the top founder, but 10% not bad, right? Not bad if you're in Apple. Well, guess what? He decided after 12 days after they started this, this um, organization, after they started this business, 12 days in, he decided to get out of it. 12 days in, he sold back his portion, that 10% of the company, he sold it back for $800. Fail, right? He walked away. He thought it was too risky. Thinks you have a couple of regrets there. Well, you think about those kind of events, you know, we kind of like laugh and shake our heads. They're like, you know, but we all have those kinds of things, right? We all have those times that we fail. Well, one thing that all of us have in common is that we fail. Ignorant people fail. Knowledgeable and well-intended people fail. All of us fail, and no matter where we go or what we do, we can't escape failure at some point in our lives. We can't escape. But also, besides those kind of like ventures and businesses and choices and that kind of thing, many of our failings, though, also include failing God. Failing God. Doing things that go against what God wants and hopes for our lives. But while we all share that inclination to fail, one thing that we differ in is our response to failure. How we respond to failure differs depending on who you are and what you do. And maybe you've heard the saying that actions speak louder than words. Who's heard that saying before, right? Actions speak louder than words. I would dare say reactions actually speak louder than words. Our responses and our reactions speak louder even than our actions. And I think our reactions and our responses, especially when it pertains to failure, that communicates what we really believe. Our responses and our reactions communicate what we believe about ourselves, but also about God. If we have faith in God, what we believe about God. So the question for today we're going to talk about responding to failure. The question for today is not only how do you respond to failure, but we're going to look ahead and say, how will you respond to failure? How will you respond to failure? So we're in this um, book of Jonah. We're in chapter 2 this week. The book of Jonah is in the Old Testament scriptures. Four little chapters there, super easy, breezy to read through very quickly. We're, gonna, we're capturing one each week. And last week, last week we unpacked Jonah chapter 1 and kind of capping off with Jonah's initial failure, so much of Jonah's failure. And the scripture says this, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. So the word of the Lord comes to Jonah to give him this commission, to give him this thing he's got to do. And what does Jonah say? What does he say? No, no. And not only does he say no, but guess what he does? He goes in the other direction. And not just like a little trip, mind you. He goes like 2,500 miles in the other direction. 
Well, as he's traveling and as he's going, he's on a boat and God sends this storm and it's a really, really bad storm and, and it's breaking up the boat and they're trying to figure out what's going on. They figure out the problem is Jonah and the captain of the ship asks Jonah to pray and asks him to try, we'll figure something out. But the only solution after all that is to throw him overboard. And they do that. They do that. They throw him overboard, and then the last verse of Jonah 1 that we read last week was, and the Lord provided, provided a great fish that swallowed Jonah, where he spent three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. Three days and three nights. But that word provided, we talked a little bit about this, that sometimes God provides a whale for us. It's not what we really want, but he provides it. He provides it, and he works through, and he used that will to actually rescue Jonah, or else Jonah would have been gone. He would have drowned right there in that sea. And, and Jonah, we see so far, he's failed at what? His calling? He had the job to be a prophet. Like, I don't know what your boss would do if, like, you just showed up one day and just sat there and played on your phone all day. Maybe you do that. I'm not saying anything about that. But, but he failed at his calling, his job, the most important thing he was supposed to do. He failed people, right? Sometimes our failures, we think, oh, it's about me and my choices ever. But the sailors on that ship and the captain, they were affected too. He failed people. He failed himself. But also, he failed God. He failed God. And so this is where we pick up in the story. With Jonah in the stinky, yucky belly of the fish. With Jonah's response. So Jonah chapter 2 is known as the prayer of Jonah. It's known as the prayer of Jonah. And it's actually, if you read it in the, the ancient Hebrew, that's the language it was written in, um, it's actually a very beautiful Hebrew prayer. And some people actually call it the Psalm of Jonah, like the Song of Jonah. And, and really, however you regard this story, uh, one of the things that you have to realize, and I, I get lots of questions about, right, Jonah was not in the belly of this fish with a flashlight, a pen, and a piece of paper. He didn't have his phone either, right? He wasn't like writing this down. So the prayer, though, is a recorded response in the story that probably took place afterwards. So Jonah chapter 2 verse 1 starts out. From the inside, this is the psalm of Jonah. From the inside of the fish, Jonah finally did what? Prayed. He prayed. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. We're going to get back to that. He said, in my what? Distress. In my distress, that we're going to get back to that too. And, and, and what did he do? He said, I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me. What did the Lord do? He answered. He answered him. So when we're responding to failure, failure in our lives, failing God, the first thing that's important to do is what Jonah did, to look up. I put it like this. Look up and fess up the mess up. Look up and fess up the mess up. We have to start there. We have to look up, look up to God, but then we have to confess. We have to confess where we have failed, where our mess up is. And I don't know about you, but don't we like to do the opposite when we fail? It's like, oh, no, she did it, right? She did it. It's her fault. Like, nope, not me. I didn't do anything. Or you look around or you ask around, that type of thing. But imagine this, that Jonah... Jonah was calling on God basically right after 
He had just said, forget you, God. I don't want anything to do with you. I'm going in my own way. I'm going the other direction. And God, God in his mercy answered him. He still answered Jonah, even though Jonah had just gone the other direction. Think about that. How just amazing that is to know a God who chases after us, who answers us even when we fail. And Jonah says those words, in my distress. He called upon him in my distress. And that's a Hebrew word. This is in your notes there called Sarah. Can you guys say that with me? Sarah, Sarah. Maybe you have a daughter named Sarah, Sarah, you know, you call by that name. But anyway, this is in the Hebrew language. And, and these are kind of picture words. You kind of see that on the screen there. These are picture words. They're not like our phonetic letters that go together. And so he's actually writing in these letters a very beautiful picture of what's going on. The words that are used when someone is giving birth or the distress of labor, that's Sarah. He says, in my distress, you know, it's a stressful, horrible, very hurtful thing. Think of a, of a woman in labor, um, but giving birth, that there's a new start happening. There's some new life that's taking place. He's saying this, in my distress, in my agony, it's as if I need to be born anew. And that's where I called on God and he answered me, that he recognized his need and then, then we look at the next part of that verse. From, from deep in the realm of the dead, I called out for help, and you listened to my cry. From deep in the realm of the dead, in some translations, it's, it's this word called sheol, sheol, which is the Jewish place of the dead, right? There's not actually, in, the, in their minds, there's this kind of lingering place that you go when you're dead, you're kind of a, a ghost-like existence. And that's, some other translations call it the grave. Um, but in other words, he's saying, from the point in which I was furthest from God, when I was dead to God, I called on God. When I was dead to God, I called on God. And maybe this has spoken to you in some way. Maybe you've been at that point. When you were dead to God, when everything was going wrong, that was what you reached up and you looked up and you called to God. Maybe for you, maybe you're even in the middle of Sheol right now. That dark, shadowy place where it almost feels like you don't even exist and you don't know what's ahead. But, but get this, verses 1 and 2 together... In the Hebrew language, if you'll be reading this in Hebrew, what you would see is a picture, a picture that's illustrated here, a picture of a man being as good as dead in the grave, in the pit, but how God in his mercy causes Sarah to be born again. That's the picture that's being painted here. That's what the, his prayer is. He had to confess where he was. He had to be real about it. To say, this is where I am, Lord. And then what did he do with that? He prayed. He prayed. Because prayer is actually a posture of looking up. See, in, in, in our tradition, in the Christian tradition, when we pray, don't we, when we teach kids and you, we do this, like when we say, let's pray, everybody's heads go down, right? Well, the Hebrews, they did the opposite. They went like this. Look up. To look up to God. To say, God, in your mercy, Sarah. Meet me here, resurrect me, bring me new life. Prayer is a posture of looking up, of knowing that we have a God who listens and meets us where we are. Uh, there's a story that um, has gone around of this small town church, and a uh, small town church, kind of mid-America, 
And the pastor of the church received news that there was going to be this kind of like crazy club that was going to be opening just a couple blocks from where the church was located. And, um, and he knew that he had many members at this church that were struggling with addictions and that may be pulled into that lifestyle again. And the pastor told his people, he said, I want to pray this, this club out of business, right? It's going to be tempting. It's bad for our town. It's not good for us. And so what they did was they held weekly prayer vigils. They had 24 hours of prayer. They had little things that you would like put on your dashboard, remember, to pray against the club, like believe it or not. And a month later, the building was struck by lightning and burned to the ground. Well, the owner of that club that had just opened it, he heard of what the church was doing. He heard that they were praying, and what did he do? He sued the church. He took them to court. And so he and the pastor show up in the courtroom, and the club owner told the judge, it's this pastor's fault. It's this church's fault. Because of their prayers, God struck us down with lightning and closed us down. And the pastor's response, oh, no, 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 no. Those were just little harmless prayers. I mean, we pray all the time. It's not our fault that God did this. And the judge looked on and nodded his head and said, this is very interesting here we have a club owner that believes in the power of prayer and a pastor who does not. <laughs> right? We laugh at that, right? It's, it's, it's funny, but, but isn't that true? A lot of times we pray and it's like, ah, just praying, just kind of out of the road thing of it. But what if we actually believe that prayer changes things? Prayer changes not necessarily every situation. We don't know all of God's ways, but it changes us. Doesn't prayer change us in that process? Change us, our, our perspective, maybe about a situation, maybe about you? When we look up and we pray, Sarah, that's what Jonah's prayer was. And it was a response. It was a response to his failure. And think about this. I was thinking about this this week. At any point in this story, God could have just gone poof, right? He could have made everything disappear. Maybe you've been at moments in your life too, you're like, just poof it. Just poof it, God. Just, okay, get on with that. Fix that. Make that better. He could have calmed the storm. He could have made Jonah float to shore without a fish. He could have sent a turtle. I, I was thinking about this. A turtle. He could have sent a turtle, right, instead of a fish. Wouldn't that have been nice? Like a talking turtle. A turtle that would have, you know, a, a huge turtle. Maybe this ones that, like, you go to the zoo, and they're the ones that can kind of, like, take your arm off, like they're huge. But maybe it was a friendly talking turtle who would carry Jonah on her back and say, Jonah, get on, and the, you know, Jonah would have got on and got like a suntan on the back of the turtle while he's like going to shore. Like, that would have been a lovely story, right? God could have done all of that. God did none of that. God didn't do any of those things. He didn't rescue Jonah by pulling him from the water. Instead, he sent the whale, and God was actively working. See, I think when we look up, when we engage in prayer, when we're intentional about connecting with God, we often see that God works in phases. God works in phases. You know, watch in Jonah's story, the different phases of God's work. First, he said, Jonah, go. And Jonah says, no. 
Jonah gets on the ship. That's kind of phase one, right? And then Jonah is caught in that storm that God sends. That's kind of phase two. And then we have the captain who's warning him, you need to pray. That's phase three. And then the sailors have mercy on him. Don't throw him overboard. That's phase four. And then they throw him overboard. And that's phase five. And then he gets swallowed by a fish that gets a tummy ache and then throws him up on shore. Like maybe God in our lives, maybe we're in a kind of 10 phase process But if you don't go through the first nine phases, you're not going to learn the things that God wants you to learn. Maybe all of that comes together because prayer allows us to embrace the phase that we're in. About where God has us, but also celebrate the works of God. What God is up to in our midst. So Jonah, Jonah looks up. He fesses up the mess up. And then he continues. He continues his, his prayer, his song. He says, Oh God, you hurled me into the depths. Now, technically, it was the sailors who did that, but he says, You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me. Seaweed, imagine this, was wrapped around my head. It sounds like an episode of Man vs. Wild, doesn't it? Um, to the roots of the mountains, I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. In other words, he's feeling like this. There's no hope for me. It's game over. But then he continues. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. But you, God. But you, God. But you, see, in Jonah chapter 1, we see the phrase over and over, down, this word down. He went down, he went down, he went down. In Jonah 2, we see things shift and we see Jonah starting to look up. You brought my life up from the pit. See, the second piece in our response is that we look up and we trust. We look up and we trust in the Lord. And maybe for you, you feel like you're in the belly of a whale right now. Maybe you failed yourself. Someone else has failed you. Maybe you failed as a, as a mom, a son, a dad, a boss, a student, a spouse, a, a friend. Maybe you failed God in some way. But we cannot forget the but God moments. The but God moments are where God intervenes in a way, interjects in a way, and that's where Jonah's trust is pointing in the but God moment. There's always going to be a but God moment. That but God would take something even tragic or terrible and but God, while he may not have caused it, he will use it. That he would cause things to happen that otherwise you could never manufacture in a million years. I remember in my first ministry assignment, I was a part of a launch team for a new church. I've shared a little bits and pieces of this story before. And we started this new church in the building of a church that was going to close. There were about 20 people left and all mainly older people and they weren't going to be able to afford to keep it open. Well, they continued to worship um, in earlier worship time than us and there were some collisions that happened, our style of music, our style of dress, uh, what we did didn't, wasn't compatible with them and there was some, while we were providing for them and, and paying rent towards them, um, they didn't really like the congregation that they saw forming and there were a lot of wars. Believe it or not, that happens in church, right? 
church wars, over chairs, over things that were very, very silly. And I remember at some point, our whole team of people were at the point where like, we should just move and walk away from this place and these people. We can't grow this church and lead people to Christ and have a welcoming atmosphere where people are, are loved in the midst of this. But we didn't. We didn't walk away. And I have to say, this was not of our doing. It was totally of God's doing. But guess what? Two years later, two years later, both congregations officially merged as one Church of the Nazarene. We were the same denomination, believe it or not. But two congregations, the people that didn't like us at the beginning, that we had so many things against, God worked in their hearts, God worked in our hearts and believe it or not, to this day, those two congregations came together. And if you would go back to the Eastern Shore of Maryland and worship there, you'll see some very, very frail elderly people who were a part of that original congregation worshiping to rock music. Believe it or not. And they see and they look and it, it's crazy. We couldn't have done that. We couldn't have done that. That was a but God moment. We prayed, we're like, we could leave, we could do our own thing, but we decided to stay and we decided to see what the but God moment would be. You have a but God moment. Maybe you haven't seen it yet, maybe it's coming up. See, when Jonah was at a point in the pit, he called upon God and he says, he continues, he says, when my life was ebbing away, what did he do? I remembered. I remembered you, O Lord, and my prayer rose to your holy temple. And the next verse, he shifts his tone, though, and you kind of hear the seriousness, the warning. He says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. See, the Hebrew word grace is this Hebrew word hesed. Hesed means literally the pursuing, overcoming love of God. And it overcomes that, that we don't want to forfeit that over trying to face our own things, over idols. Idols are not necessarily statues, especially this day and age, that people just like would worship. Idols are actually good things that get out of their rankings in pertaining to God, that we put them above God. You know, and for, for Jonah, one of the idols was prejudice. One of his idols was prejudice. He said, I don't like this group of people, so I'm not going to go to them second idol he had was of self. He said, I heard what God wants me to do, but I'm going to do what I want to do. And it's very common. Don't we share a lot of those same things? Our image, holding on to things, our success. But he's saying this. He's saying when we trust in those idols, our hands are not free to receive hesed, the grace of God. Our hands are not free, but then I like what Jonah did. Because he stopped making excuses. He says this. He says, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. See, the last part of a response to our failure is to look up, receive grace, and make good. To make good. It's important to make good. And it's in that order. It's receiving grace and then making good. Well, I vowed I will make good. What did he vow? Well, we don't really know exactly, but we'll see next chapter where that turns out. But mainly a promise to obey the next time, to listen, to speak, to go, to instead of putting things off, to come back and to follow through. And, and maybe for you, there's something that you need to make good on today that you've been putting off a response, a chance for you to make good, to know that even in Jonah's time, it was not too late. It was never too late. Remember, Jonah's in the fish, right? As he's praying this, 
He's praying. And there was nothing that Jonah could do to contribute to his salvation. There was nothing Jonah could do that could save himself. He couldn't. He couldn't. And so I want you to remember that he couldn't do anything. But yet we read the end of what he says in this context, and he says this, I will say salvation comes from the Lord. I will say salvation comes from the Lord, saying I can't contribute anything. Salvation's from God. I can't fix it. I got to depend on him. That's grace. That's grace. It's the gift of God that we've been given, that we believe through Christ, who tied this up, that through Christ, that's good news, that we receive grace. It's not about us trying to fix everything and earning our way, that the good things that we do come out of receiving the grace that we've received. See, we can't bring anything to it. And when we recognize that, our only reasonable response is to say something like, Jonah, here's my life. Take it. Salvation comes from the Lord. See, Jonah's experiencing the power of grace like he's never experienced it before. And the chapter ends with this. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Kind of disgusting, right? Kind of disgusting, but very powerful. And I think it drives home that powerful thought that God's response to our failure is his salvation. It's his salvation. It's his grace. It's, it's his grace. It's meeting us. And, and so all this summed up together is that when we hit rock bottom, we have to look up. When you hit rock bottom, look up. Look up. How do you respond to failure? How do you respond at work, at school, in your relationships, in your marriage, with your finances, with your relationship with Jesus? And while it may be true that your actions speak louder than words, know that your responses and your reactions speak way louder. And Jesus, Jesus would come on the scene, and there's a lot of parallels here, the three days being in the whale, the three days that Jesus was in the tomb before the resurrection, but Jesus would come and he would instruct us to respond in a way that would reflect our heavenly Father's response to us that we would make good, that he invites us to respond to our failure in a way that reflects the overwhelming and unwavering confidence in God. And it's a confidence knowing that God is with you and that God is for you. And the death and the resurrection of Jesus is a story for many of us to live out. Allowing ourselves to be Sarah to be given new life, to receive that, and then to make good with it. And that's a note for all of us. And I know as Christians, we don't always follow that, right? That, I don't know about you, but you've probably met some people that you're like, wow, I don't know how, they're following Jesus, right? And, and, but I think it's good news for all of us to know that we all need grace. It's not just them, whoever them is in your life, but we need it too. And I'm going to kind of wrap up this message with a quote from one of my favorite authors, theologians, N.T. Wright. Um, he says this, it's, it, it's no part of Christian belief to say that the followers of Jesus have always got everything right. Jesus himself taught his followers a prayer, which includes a clause for asking God for forgiveness. He must have thought we would go on needing it. 